1: All these books. I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, Trek FM's dedicated books and comics show. I'm just one of your hosts, Dan Gunther, and with me as he is every week is the wonderful, the bright, the brash, the young, the amazing Bruce Gibson. Oh, I like the young part in there too. <laughs> I thought you'd appreciate that.
0: <laughs> I am young. I'm young at heart. And I do feel bright. I'm just shining today, feeling good. I'm ready to do the show. I'm so excited
1: as always. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm, I'm definitely excited because I don't know, looking at the number for this episode, just to start with one ninety nine. like that's a, that's a big number. Like we, you and I haven't been doing this the whole time, but we've done our fair (laughs) share. Oh, I'm glad you said that because I I was rattling my brains today, going because I have
0: multiple brains. I'm rattling my <laughs> brains today, and I'm thinking, what? I, it doesn't feel like I've done 199 shows. This is incredible. Time has just flown by. But like you just pointed out, I have I haven't been here for 199.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so now that no, makes and, sense. And neither have I. I've been here for a few more than you, but still nowhere nowhere near 199. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, um. Yeah, but anyway, one eighty nine. That that's a good one. That's a good number. I wonder what that's the next one's cool. going to be.
1: Yeah, I I don't know. I, I I've never counted this high before, so I'm not sure where it goes from here. Does it just? It's, that's a pretty big number. Does it just reset back to zero? I think that's how numbers work, right? Uh, I, well, this
0: isn't Mathematic Trex, okay? <laughs>
1: we need Amy back on. We
0: need Amy to do that. <laughs> so this is all about literature. This is our, our literature class right now, not our mathematics class, which is funny because math was always my best subject, hmm. not literature. <laughs> so why not? I Why not? I'll do a literature podcast, sure.
1: <laughs> Only your teachers could see you now. the The thing that I'm really that I just is a revelation to me is you you're telling me you have multiple brains. Like do you work for the Imorg? Like whose brains are those? You should give them back. You didn't steal Spock's. Did you?
0: No, I didn't. I just go based on what other people tell me. I know I have a brain up here at the top (laughs) of my head, but then there's other times people make comments as if I'm sitting on my brain. So I figure I've got a brain on top and one on the bottom.
1: Okay. All right. And that would make two. I counted. That's math. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no comments on which one you use the most, right? That is correct.
0: <laughs> and when I have a headache, it's on the top. So <laughs> I don't know what that means,
1: but I'm just saying. <laughs> That's awesome. my main brain. Well, I think uh, regardless of what exactly the number of the next episode is, I think you're going to be... I think you, dear listener, are going to be pretty happy with what we have lined up. We've got some surprises. I don't know how much we want to give away, but uh yeah, we got some fun stuff coming up, I think. Ooh, some surprises. Oh, come on, just tell me what you got me. Just tell me. <laughs> actually, uh to be totally fair, I I, I was really hoping you'd plan something because I, I I actually have I got nothing. I don't I don't know.
0: Oh, well, at least we got each other the same things. <laughs> oh. Well,
1: it's exactly what I've always wanted. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Well. We might as well go to the news then, right? I, th- I think that'll, yeah, that works. We, d- we do have a couple items in the news today too. Uh, some big news coming from Comic-Con, of course, the San Diego Comic-Con happened recently. And besides all the big, you know, new trailer for Star Trek Discovery and all the other really great Star Trek stuff there, we got some updates on the IDW Star Trek line from SDCC. So Bruce, why don't you share uh, what we learned from Comic-Con there?
0: I found an article from Newsarama that was doing a really good job at blogging of what was going on at that panel with IDW Publishing, and they wrote about Discovery and how it's written by Discovery staff writer Kirsten Beyer and Mike Johnson. We know those two. And with art by Tony Shasteen, and this is due out in October. And they say, It's so secret, the, pro- the projected image says we can't show you much more yet. Johnson said the goal is to expand upon the story readers will see in the TV show.
1: Klingons will be involved, he added. Hmm. Excellent. That sounds really exciting. Uh, You know, so much discovery coming and It's all going to kind of drop at once. You know, the new show and then the new novel by David Mack and then this comic series coming in October. I mean, do you ever just stop and think like, You know, there's a lot of people complaining out there and there's all that stuff. But, you know, shoving that to one side, can we just reflect on the fact that there's a new Star Trek series coming in less than two months or almost exactly two months? And, you know, some of it's being written by some huge names like Kirsten Beyer and Nicholas Meyer. And man, it's a great time to be a Trekkie, isn't it? It is. It actually reminds me of 1987
0: when The Next Generation was premiering. Now, I was not a Trekkie back then. I really wasn't that much into Star Trek. I, I really only cared for the movies. And, of course, at that point, there would only been four. But I remember coming home from college. Yes, I was in college in 1987. Thank you very much. I came home for college at my parents' house. And I remember the show was going to premiere, if I remember correctly, Sunday at 4 o'clock. It was a two-hour episode of course the premiere of encounter of farpoint and i just remember that whole thing of wow you know star trek back on tv that's that's incredible it's been forever and now yeah that went for years and years and years you know new series kept coming up but we never had a break and now we've had a 10-year break no i'm sorry a 12-year break and it's that feeling again of wow Star Trek's coming back to TV, but you know, the next generation looked different from the original series. And so now when I look at discovery, I think, Hmm, it looks a lot different from, you know, TNG and DS nine Voyager and enterprise. So we won't get all into that, but I keep having to remind myself, not only are we getting the new series, but Oh yeah, we're going to get novels. I'm saying that plural. I don't know anything, but I know we're getting at least one novel and, I think I did hear we're getting a second one. But anyway, you know we're gonna get multiple novels. I don't know (laughs) where I heard that. Maybe it was a rumor. But I was, you know, and then of course we have these comics coming. It's like, wow, we're getting novels and comics
1: and a series, and it's all tied together. This is you're right, exciting time. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm I'm just I'm totally psyched. You know, I was I was kind of one of those people that was a little cautious, a little holding back. I wasn't negative about anything, but you know, I was like, okay, let's wait and see. But I do have to say now I'm just fully shifted into totally psyched, totally pumped for all this new star Trek coming. I there's, there's no coming back from this. I am. I'm there.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I know I'll enjoy it. I mean, if it turns out not being all that great, oh, well, you know, Mm -hmm. we'll get another one sometime. (laughs) I mean, I'm just like, we're always getting novels (laughs) and other things in star Trek. I mean, I, I, you know, it's, it, but it's going to be good. I know it. So we have another comic, uh, news here from san diego comic-con international we have an upcoming arc for star trek boldly go will be idic which will include multi-dimensional versions of the crew such as evil mirror universe kirk which is funny because we're going to talk about an evil mirror mirror universe kirk in the feature about preserver <laughs> we have an ai version of star trek and a kirk that was raised as a
1: klingon Excellent. So yeah, we talked about the cover for this in the last episode, and now we finally get what that meant. You know, we had that kind of different pie slice versions of Kirk's face. And so it's not just, you know, one mirror universe evil Kirk. It's all these different iterations, kind of the, I'm thinking the idea of like the different quantum realities, like in the TNG episode parallels with Worf jumping to different ones. We're going to get, you know, different versions of, of the rebooted Star Trek universe, the Kelvin timeline. So, that's kind of cool.
0: Yeah. So this would be Kelvin Evil Mirror Universe Kirk and Kelvin Klingon Kirk and whatever, and so on <laughs> and so
1: forth. It gets
0: all confusing, but uh, I yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be fun.
1: Um, I'm looking forward to this one. Absolutely. Yeah. No. This looks really excellent. Well, we do also have, uh, speaking of comics, a new comic to talk about this week, and that is the latest episode, episode, issue, whatever, of Boldly Go. So this is issue number 10, and fe- it features, interestingly enough, a character that we saw briefly at the end of Star Trek Beyond, and he gets his own story. And that character, of course, is the world-renowned, very well-known, very popular Kevin, you guys remember who I'm talking about here? About knee high, not very fond of pants, as I recall.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Kevin doesn't wear pants. Neither does Donald (laughs) Duck,
1: but. (laughs) but he's still very bashful when he comes out of the shower and wraps that towel around himself, so. (laughs) Maybe, I wonder if Kevin's the same way. I wonder if he comes out of the sonic shower and is like, Rushing to grab a towel to cover himself,
0: even though he never wears pants. You didn't see that panel in the comic?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I must have missed that somehow.
0: (laughs) All right, Dan. So tell me, I'm dying to know, what did you think of this one? First
1: impressions and last impressions. Okay. So reading this one from start to finish, I have to say, I loved it. I thought this was hilarious. I really, really enjoyed this one. I it's it doesn't seem like one that I might enjoy, but I was I loved the jokes. I loved I mean we're we're gonna give a little bit away from this comic. It's a standalone. Uh I don't think they're continuing this story directly in the next one, but you know, we have these, these aliens, they're the aliens we saw right at the beginning of Star Trek Beyond. They're the ones that Kirk's negotiating with, and then they end up attacking him and he beams back aboard with a couple of them on his back. One of them ends up sticking around and we see him at the end, like I said, of Star Trek Beyond and his name is Kevin. Now I might be wrong about this, but I seem to remember the story was that it was kind of, uh, an ad-libbed line that Chris Pine called him Kevin. <laughs> I think
0: I remember hearing that too, that it wasn't written in the script that, yeah, I think he threw that in.
1: Yeah. Cause the, the entire line was, he walks by and Kirk looks at him and says, Oh, still not wearing pants. I see Kevin or something like that. Or Kevin still not wearing pants. I see or something like that. Yep. And I love that that like spawned this whole story and just that little tiny scene. And we get to know Kevin and meet him. And of course the, the leader of his planet, the, the grand autark, Steve.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, now we have to clarify what we learn is they're called Kevin and Steve because we can't, us
1: humans cannot pronounce their names. Right. Yeah. And that they're saying that's the closest they can come to (laughs) the proper pronunciation, which as far as explanations go, I love it. I think that's great. No, this one, it felt tongue in cheek to me the whole time. And I'm, I was okay with that. Like, it was just, it was fun. You know, it, it wasn't taking itself seriously. It was obviously laughing at itself. And I can really appreciate that. I really, I really got behind this story. I thought it was a lot of fun.
0: I didn't know what you were going to say. I didn't know if you like <laughs> this or not. So Yeah, and I'm, I'm equally curious. I, I have no idea what you think of this story. You know what, Dan, I have to tell you. You and I are a lot alike, but when it comes to comics, oh, we're still a lot alike because I loved it too. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I, I was already thrilled to see that was about Kevin. I was like, oh good, because I <laughs> wonder what, what is Kevin doing there and what, what's going on with him? And we get a little story of what's happening to Kevin after we saw him in Star Trek Beyond. And you're right, it's very fun tongue in cheek. If you like the first scene in the movie, this feels the same way. It's it has that fun, you know, adventure. I could hear these these creatures talking in that low voice, but then being really small at the same time. And yeah, you know, it was just, you know, and the fact that you know his name's Kevin, and I mean probably the thing I laughed the most about was when you know the leader, whatever, shows up and he's real mean and you know, he says, you know, oh my name is Steve. And I'm
1: like, really? <laughs> <laughs> Steve? I am Steve. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. Oh, it's great stuff.
0: And that Kevin's also working on the new enterprise, helping you know, helping them build it. And who's he working with? But Keenzer. I mean, Mm -hmm. perfect. You know, the two of them are just, you know, pals together. And I just love it. It's just, there's so much fun to this. And then, then we throw in Scotty. He comes to visit, which is the one thing that annoyed me a little. I shouldn't say annoyed. One thing I didn't like is that Scotty is not involved in this project of building a new enterprise. He's teaching at Starfleet Academy. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You know, and I felt like I would think Scotty would be there while the enterprise is being built and overseeing that whole project and not being on Earth teaching at the academy and occasionally coming every few months to just check on things but you know i guess that's how it is but i'd like to think Mm -hmm. that
1: scotty's there you know yeah and i mean that kind of would track with what we know of the prime universe too of course uh you know scotty in the motion picture oversaw the refit of the original enterprise and all that stuff and in star trek 3 he was so keen to stick around and help with, you know, the refit that he thought was going to be happening there. You know? Yeah. It makes sense that Scotty would want to stick close to his baby and, you right. know, shepherd the enterprise from start to finish here kind of thing. Yeah. But, uh, but that's
0: just a little quibble that I had yeah. on that one. But I mean, adding Scotty in, I mean, it was written, Scotty was written perfectly. <laughs> I mean, I could hear the lines just as if it was really Scotty talking
1: steve that's amazing hail steve <laughs> just, yeah <laughs> and you know how Scotty's I, I always do not d- accept your fealty you are not worthy <laughs> oh well glad that's settled then <laughs> like it's just yeah the totally the the simon pegg version of scotty is just yeah oh man you can he, he so hear that.
0: you can so hear simon pegg and you know i love in the movies where uh scotty's always telling keenster you know get down and then and then we have Kevin up on you know the console and he's like, all right, Kevin, no sitting on the consoles. <laughs> it's like <laughs> Scotty just has a problem with people sitting on things.
1: <laughs> uh. Yeah. And yeah, I don't want to totally ruin this comic because it, it is definitely worth picking up. You should grab it. Like I said, it seem, it's fairly standalone. You know, you don't have to have read any of the series prior to this or I'm assuming after this to enjoy it. it doesn't leave a cliffhanger or anything like that. You should grab it. The, the These alien beings end up kind of hatching a bit of a scheme against the Federation by stealing what they think is their seat of power. So... I won't say any more about that. You should definitely check it out. And Perfect way to say it. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and I did see actually on Twitter that I think Sarah Gatos was saying this was a particular favorite of hers uh, that she edited for for the IDW line. So it's it's a lot of fun. It's so much fun.
0: It is. <laughs> and, and and again, Scotty, I'm just reading. I won't even read the whole line, but you know he refers to the one leader of the what are they called the uh uh the the race it's the um, I was trying to remember tea. but um he calls you know little frog you know because <laughs> <As> he gets <laughs> mad at them it's just I mean it's just so much and Admiral Paris from the Yorktown is here so uh so yeah Ch- this is definitely a must
1: the Phinebians were the other alien race these guys were the uh, Tenaxians that's yes, it that's it the Tenaxians like talaxians but not quite <laughs> right like talaxians without pants and much smaller <laughs> <laughs> well with uh with all of that aside i'm i'm man i'm glad we both enjoyed that one because i was i was worried this is one that i feel like if someone's expecting a really serious really gritty star trek story they might be disappointed but you know, just let yourself enjoy this one. This one's a lot of fun and I'm really glad we both liked it. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, that's what issue number 10 issue number 10. Yeah. We're getting, we're already a fifth of the way through what the run of the, uh, ongoing series was, right? It was 50 issues. I think, uh, I think it was 60, 60. Oh, we're sixth of the way through. Okay. Excellent. I hope this one runs as long as that one did, at least, because these, if this is any indication, these are a lot of fun. 60 or beyond. <laughs> exactly. Well, with all of that said, what do you say we head to our feature and talk about Preserver by William Shatner?
0: Yes, let's do
1: it. Well, over the course of a number of episodes of Literary Treks, we have talked about The William Shatner-verse novels, or the Shat-narrative, as a friend of mine calls them. Uh, You know, Ashes of Eden, The Return, Avenger, and then now we're on the second trilogy, the Mirror Universe trilogy, with the final book of those three books that make up that set. So, tonight we are talking about Star Trek Preserver by William Shatner, along with help by Judith and Garfield Reeves-Stevens. So, First impressions, uh, wh- where we're at in the Mirror Universe trilogy here, wh- what are you, how have you been enjoying, been enjoying this trilogy so far, where we find ourselves at the beginning of this novel?
0: I've liked the trilogy. I think I mentioned on the uh, previous book, Dark Victory, that I read the first two books when they came out, but for some reason, I never read this last book. I don't know why. I think one reason is because I always thought the cover wasn't as good as the other covers. I mean, know that sounds kind of crazy, but I think when it came out, because at the time, you know, I was really conscious, more conscious about money than I am now, but <laughs> I wouldn't buy the hardcovers. I wait for the paperbacks. And I think by the time the paperback came out, I may have lost interest and the cover just didn't interest me that much and I just passed it by. So I never read it. So rereading the other two, was interesting uh because i'm revisiting things i've read before but now when i'm coming into a third book that ends this trilogy having never read it before i was really excited about it but i like the book i'm probably going this too soon but i like the book but not as much as i thought i was going to okay interesting
1: yeah. Well, like you, this was my first time reading this book, but it had also been the first time reading the previous two books as well. So, um, you know, I, I hadn't, I hadn't read any Shatnerverse books beyond the return before reading them for this podcast. So, you know, definitely a lot of, uh, a lot of things that I haven't really been exposed to in, um, in this whole, I'd almost say side universe, right? Because it's not, you know, it does follow the continuity like the other books do, but, you know, neither of them really acknowledge the other, I guess. So, you know, you'll never get a reference to Kirk being alive in the main novel verse, you know, it's just, it kind of, yeah, it exists separately, but yeah, I, 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 you know, jumping ahead like you, I, I, I enjoyed this one, but we'll, we'll get to, you know, our final thoughts and ratings for sure.
0: Yeah. I think with the Shatner verse, books uh it's it's exactly what you said the authors do not refer to it uh refer to them um yeah they i'm sure they're allowed to hint to some things or maybe you know make a wink to the books but it doesn't fit uh they're not supposed to follow the continuity in their books but you're Mm. right um when we get to later books and we get to the next trilogy, there are some things in those books that do fit into the continuity that we get later in the novels. So mm-hmm. you read them and you think, Oh, this is part of the current novel verse. But then when you read the books and novels, they never refer, like you said, to Kirk being alive or any of these events that happened. So yeah, I guess you can say it is like a side universe to the novel verse
1: the first thing that i kind of wanted to talk about is the whole idea of the preservers so basically all we know from canon is that the preservers in the uh few centuries ago in our own history transplanted a group of native north americans from earth to this planet and there's a big obelisk on it and it deflects asteroids And from that, this whole mythology has been built around the preservers and what they do and who they are. So this, you know, kind of enigmatic group that is billions of years old, they they kind of link them in this book to the ancient humanoids from the chase. And I think they're kind of implying they're the same people. And they're kind of this uber powerful super race who have a hand in, you know, manipulating galactic events and all that kind of stuff. I kind of wanted just your first impressions. What do you think about how they were portrayed in this novel? How, how do you feel the preservers come across here? Well, we don't actually see the preservers,
0: uh, in the book. They're mainly referred to. Well, I guess later mm-hmm. we kind of see them in a sense. But anyway, I, I don't know where I've read this before, but and it was recent, but the whole idea that the question comes up, are these preservers the only preservers? Were there multiple preservers? And then I think there was mention too, well, how do we know that preservers don't look like us or like Klingons or other races and such like that? So you know, I think their portrayal, is keeping in line with what we've been hinted at and what we've seen in the series, but just kind of making them a little more mysterious. What mm-hmm. I mean, it, I, I don't feel like we really got a concrete answer of, you know, about the preservers. There's a lot of speculation going on in this.
1: Yeah. I, I noticed that a lot. There seemed to be like a lot of times they'd be discussing, you know, either pre- their preservers or some other theory or something like that. And there'd be like, five different things they're talking about, like, oh, maybe it's this, maybe it's this. But they say, well, we think it's this, and then they just go with that.
0: Yeah, and, then, <laughs> and, and not only do they say, oh, we think it's this, and they go with that, then you get later in the book, and then they say, you know, it's not that, it's this. And of course, like, you know, I'm just using McCoy as an example. I'd be like, wait, what are you talking about? I thought they were this. Well, we thought that was it, but
1: now we think it's this. <laughs> it just mm. keeps changing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kind of liked the, the speculation that maybe you know, it was, uh, different groups of people over the course of, of centuries and that kind of thing. But the one thing that does link them all together are these obelisks, you know, these huge objects like, like was in the, the temple basically that Kirk found on that planet with Miramani and, and his whole adventures there, the episode being the paradise syndrome in season three of TOS. And, you know the, this idea that this this race has, has seeded these all over the place to make corrections and to do things over the course of history. It's kind of it it really is this kind of epic idea and this epic scale, which is which is really interesting. And I mean, I know it's not the novel's job to give us definitive answers and to pin everything down you know, every single fact, but I definitely wanted to learn more about the preservers and and why they're doing this and and what their ultimate goal is. I I would like to
0: know more. I don't think we see more of the preservers in the later Shatner verse novels. I don't recall. Maybe it's been a long time since I've read those, but you know, I, I, it, it's one of those things where I'd like to sit down with this novel and other novels about preservers and read them all together and just have like a preserver readathon <laughs> and just <laughs> see how all those books would tie together. I know that all Star Trek books don't necessarily work together and some take one road, some take the other but I, every time I read a novel, I always think that there's some truth to it. That if there's an alter ulti- if there really is a Star Trek universe out there that's for real, we're getting bits and pieces of truth that really makes up what the Star Trek universe is. And so mm. when I read a novel like this, I think, okay, maybe there have been different races and different generations of preservers out there. And maybe they are a lot of what we've thought about before or maybe they're not. I know I'm being vague, but I almost feel like I'm doing what the book is doing and saying they are this and maybe they're not that. And I just feel like there's a lot more to figure out about them. I want to go dig and find out more somewhere else and kind of put those puzzle pieces together. Even though the authors didn't work together to do that, it'd be interesting to see what kind of conclusion you come up with, say, this is kind of the overall impression of who the preservers really are. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: I was kind of thinking as I was reading and and the book doesn't really break the fourth wall this way or, or really nudge you in this direction, but I was thinking kind of almost in a tongue in cheek way that the preservers were like the stand-ins for the creators of of Star Trek and the writers and that sort of thing, uh, yeah. because they're crafting the universe and, you know, who made the decision for Captain Kirk to become the captain of the enterprise at such a young age? Well, it was Gene Roddenberry is the guy who wrote it. So, you know, I was kind of thinking in the back of my mind, Oh, the preservers are like, you know, the producers and the writers of Star Trek kind of, you know, what far beyond the stars did literally. I thought maybe preserver was doing kind of figuratively, but You know, I mean, obviously they're not going to really bring that idea into the story itself. That would be way too meta for a, you know, Star Trek novel to be taken seriously kind of thing. But it's kind of in the back of my mind that like, yeah, the producers, the producers are the preservers. They're the ones that are making all the decisions and shaping the universe the way we see it.
0: (laughs) I love that. Uh, That's an interesting point there. And that's the other thing I like about this is it almost portrays things as not being a coincidence. I mean, when you watch TV series and movies and in and, and novels and stuff in this universe, there's things that just seem to happen very easily. And now we can look at things and say, well, you know, Kirk became a captain early in age. He was the youngest captain. Well, maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe it's not just because oh he's just so good at it. Maybe there was something else behind that. And so all these coincidences and, Oh, that was just too easy or, Oh, it just so happens that person happened to be there at that time. You know, cause anytime you watch something on TV or a movie and you see something like, that, like oh, that's a little too convenient, you know, just so happens that that person was there, you know, or whatever. Now we can say mm-hmm. for star Trek, well, maybe because the preservers were behind that because they're actually predicting the future based on patterns. Mm-hmm. They, because there's certain patterns that we ourselves have a habit of doing that they're able to look at it and say, okay, I know where this is going because of the patterns I've seen in humanity. And based on those patterns of history with humanity, this is ultimately where things are going. So I can steer it in different directions if I want to.
1: Right. Which brings us to the whole concept of the psycho historians, which I thought was really interesting so we've got these people whose entire study of history is based on the decisions of people but not usually individual people more mass populations as a whole and trends and kind of like you said reading patterns and finding things out like that and according to these psychohistorians you know a population of merely 7 billion or whatever on one planet isn't enough to do this. You need like a huge population. And of course the Federation qualifies. So, you know, using data from all of this, they're able to find kind of patterns that are happening and and pinpoint where things are going and where they've come from and that sort of thing. And they determine that the universe is going to end in a few weeks kind of thing. (laughs) Which I thought was interesting because they're interested in these broad, big trends, but then they discover, you know, very, very fine, minute details that that have a huge effect kind of thing. I don't know. What did you think of the psychohistorians and kind of how they operate? I loved this
0: part of the story because it reminds me of where I work, which is a weather company, I don't, I'm not a meteorologist, but I work near meteorologists and that's exactly what they do. They're looking at patterns of what's happening in weather. And based on those patterns, they're able to predict fairly closely what's going to happen that next day. So when you're watching and you're getting your forecast, it's that same thing. And it's not a 100% guarantee. That's why when they say, oh, there's a 70% chance of rain, that doesn't mean they they don't know 100% sure what's going to happen, but they have a pretty good idea that it's more likely going to rain. And I think mm. that's what's going on here. It's that same thing. It's like looking at the patterns of, like you said, a mass population of humanity, and based on what they're doing at the time, well, you know, there's this you know, probably a 70% chance that the universe is going
1: to explode. (laughs) (laughs) It reminds me of like, you're talking about meteorologists. It reminds me of that cartoon where it shows, you know, the weather report for Alderaan, (laughs) you know, you know, 70 degrees. 85 degrees and then the next day it's like 9,428 degrees (laughs) and fire and yeah it's (laughs) exploding planets yes Hmm. i think the world may end on this day (laughs) yeah
0: and so it it, it's it would be great if we could all just sit here and predict exactly what's going to happen and be prepared for it but we we're we're not as smart as these guys are
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah definitely and you know their work kind of leads me to think about, you know, the ideas of free will versus predestination kind of thing. You know, like, are we just kind of at the whim of, of the vagaries of fate, as they say, or in this case, the preservers, you know, they have they basically the story reveals that they have a hand in a ton of decisions, right? So they, Interfere basically, in you know at all levels, they generate false orders that assign captains to various positions and and move people into positions so they're in the right place at the right time, and it occurs to me, you know, we've got the preservers doing this on a macro level for billions of years. We've got Urii <laughs> messing around in the Federation since you know the early days of Enterprise, and. There was one more that popped into my head. I can't remember now, but, you know, we've got all these forces that are that are manipulating everything. <laughs> Is there any room for free will for anybody? Yeah, it do we to... ever make our own
0: decisions? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, that's the same criticism that people had of David Mack's Section 31 novel, Control, that, well, you know, did are we, as the Federation, where we are because of... Our free will and what we've decided, or is it because of what control or Uriye has led us to? And I think Mm -hmm. David was very good at pointing out the time that when we reviewed this book, that we're still making free will decisions. It's like the parent nudging the child, like you know, like maybe pushing him in the pool. Like you can swim, I'm just gonna give you a little push to get you in the water to actually do it, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And I almost feel like that's what we're seeing here with the preservers. And I I want to touch on that whole thing about the preservers and Urii uh, from Control because it made me wonder. And I know again, these novels necessarily aren't related, but I like to pretend that there's some truth. Among them all, that there is a
1: connection. I wonder if the preservers had something to do with the creation of Urii. It's yeah. I mean, I have to admit, when I was reading, you know, those thoughts were in my head as well. I mean, these are books that are separated by about twenty, close to twenty years in publication. Anyway, I think this was two thousand. Yes, and so two thousand seventeen. So seventeen years publishing difference. I you know obviously. Obviously, William Shatner and Judith Garfield-Reeves-Stevens would know nothing about Control or Uri, And I doubt that David Mack had this in mind when he wrote Control. But yeah, that's that's the joy of these novels. Like you said earlier, each novel has a little piece of the Star Trek universe. And when you read a new novel, you incorporate it and weave it in. And maybe it doesn't always fit perfectly. But every once in a while, there's you know something that dovetails really nicely and makes you go, Hmm, I wonder, you know, and yeah, that totally did this for me as well. I was kind of wondering, like, we've got all these forces that are, you know, subtly manipulating events and, you know, I would, I would make the case. I totally agree with David Mack with regards to Control and Urii. I think if someone was angry about what Control said about the Star Trek universe, they should be 10 times angrier about this novel and its revelations and what the preservers were doing, because I think this is a much more apparent manipulation than what we saw in Control, you know? To me, anyway, it seems like the preservers have this end goal and they're manipulating everybody to be in a particular place at a particular time to try and move things exactly the way they want it, which, uh, you know, obviously... Is to our benefit, I think, given what we learn about the nature of the mirror universe versus ours, but still feels very much like totally we're totally at the whims of some vast, bigger power than us, if that makes sense. Well, of course, that's also what
0: is found in religion. You know, uh, there's a vast power in God and God is probably leading us in certain directions. And and again, not necessarily controlling everything that we do. We have some free will, but also guiding us. And the preservers may be guiding us. And I don't know if it's really because they are trying to help us or save us, or possibly they are just experimenting with us. Are we lab rats? I mean, we're talking... Billions of years of things going on, and to the preservers, that may be a small amount of time, and they're still just doing some experiments with us. And, you know, they're just changing the course just to see how we respond. And and maybe it's a game in some ways to them, because if they're following certain patterns and they're predicting what's going to happen, maybe this is all a game of, hey, mm-hmm. we're going to, you know, push things a little this direction and see if what's going to happen is going to happen as we predict and see how close we get each time. You know, I don't know what's
1: motivating the preservers.
0: I didn't, I I, did you, (laughs) did you figure out what it is that why they're doing what they're doing?
1: Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, my brain went to all kinds of places in this book, which is, I mean, a testament to the story. I mean, a a good story should make you think and make you ponder big questions. You know, It, it led me to the idea like, well, is, you know, something that philosophers talk about a lot is our universe, is, are our lives just a simulation running somewhere? And are we just, you know, another simulation on a preserver computer somewhere? And they're going, okay, well, that didn't work. Wipe, start again. You know, they're so far above us, apparently, that, you know, it could be something like that. I do have to also say, I love your bringing up God and religion, because there's one part in this book that I, I highlighted and I loved it where Picard, you know, they're talking about the preservers and and P- Picard turns to Kirk and says, Jim, why would preservers need to travel around the galaxy in Starfleet vessels? Right. Kirk kept his smile to himself. He seemed to recall asking a similar question on a different mission long ago. And, I, you know, of course, it pops immediately into your head what does God need with a starship? <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was at that moment I was like, Oh, they're kind of subtly comparing the preservers to God. So I, th- I thought that was a really interesting, I'm really glad you brought that up because that, that definitely popped into my head as well was, and, and at that point, yeah, you kind of say to yourself, well, what is the difference? You know? Yeah. Funny how a
0: novel written by William Shatner makes a reference to a movie. Uh, directed by William Shatner.
1: (laughs) Imagine that. (laughs) Star Trek
0: V, The Final Frontier. Yeah, we should have had uh, William Shatner on here to talk about this novel and and ask him these questions of why he did this with the Preservers and what his intentions were. Yeah, for sure.
1: I think he would have those answers probably readily available right off the top of his head. Well, he would quickly make something up if he didn't remember. As any good writer would do for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) So the other thing that this brought to mind was not only is our idea of free will brought into question by the existence of the preservers and the direct manipulation that they're taking, but also just this whole idea of psychohistory and the idea that patterns make our actions totally predictable. So even if you take the preservers completely off the board... And I realize this is a huge philosophical question and scientific question that we are not going to be able to answer on a podcast about Star Trek novels. You know, do we have free will or is the fact that history is so totally predictable based on the actions of populations, is that proof that there is no free will and that we're all just cogs in the great machine that is the universe moving forward and, you know, I'm going to get up and go to work tomorrow because I always got up and went to work tomorrow, and I have no actual say in that decision.
0: Well, I can actually answer this question because I have more than one brain.
1: Oh, right. Yes, I forgot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, going back to what I was saying about meteorologists, I remember one of them saying to me, you know, when we say there's a 50% chance of rain, it doesn't mean that we're saying there, we're predicting. That there's a 50% chance that it's going to rain. What we're really saying is that based on the patterns that we're seeing right now, half of the time it has rained in the past based on historical information. Mm. So that's really what it's saying when they're saying 50% chance. It's really saying 50% of the time it has rained when these patterns begin to happen. So when it comes to our history and our free will, I wouldn't say that our actions are predictable. I would say that based on certain patterns, we've had a history of certain events happening. So like you say, you're you saying when you're going to work, we know that there's a pattern that every weekday you go to work and the result is that you get there. And so there's a 99% chance that tomorrow morning when you go to work, you're going to get to the office. And we base that on history. But there may have been times in the past where you went to work and somehow didn't get there. Maybe you got into a fender bender or maybe you got called to, to visit someone in the hospital because you heard, of, heard that a friend of yours is, got sick and, and, and you need to go a different direction or whatever it is. And so based on that historical pattern, we can predict to a certain percentage what is going to happen the next day? 99% chance that Dan's going to get to work tomorrow because 99% of the time that he has left the uh, the house, he got to work. So I wouldn't say it's predictable, but we know fairly close what will probably happen. So I would say, yes, we still have free will. Thank you for listening to Metatrex. I'm Bruce Gibson.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Well, I think... I'm just going to not go to work tomorrow then. And then I'll have finally beat the odds and I'll go and buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> Cause I mean, 99% chance I, I I'm the 1%, you know, I I made that 1%. So my odds are really good that day. Right. I think that's how it works. Yeah. That's why so many people win the lottery. <laughs> exactly. Actually, isn't it, I'm pretty sure this is how statistics work, isn't it? You either do or you don't. It's 50-50, right? I mean, you either do or you don't. I mean, no, I'm just kidding. I hate it when people say that. <laughs> oh, fundamental. Somewhere right now, Amy Nelson is just like looking around going like, oh, why do I, oh, what's that feeling?
0: <laughs> See, we're
1: getting into math. I told you I was better at math than I was about literature. Excellent. No, that was really cool. I love that explanation of the, because yeah, I, I mean, you know, I look at the weather report and I see 50% chance of rain and I, it occurs to me now, I just never really understood what that meant or where that calculation came from. So that's, that's really cool. Thank you. You are very welcome. I learned something new today. So another thing that this book addresses, which, you know, I found kind of a a pleasant surprise because it's one of those things in the original series that comes up a lot. Uh, The duplicate Earths we see in the original series. So, for example, in the episode Miri, we see an exact duplicate of Earth. You know, they're all gasping on the bridge. Oh, my God, it's it's another Earth. And then in another episode, when they see another Earth, they say, oh, it's an example of Hodgkin's law of parallel planet development. But we'll ignore that because this book ignores that as well. Um what did you think of this idea of these duplicate earths being, you know, possible experiments by the preservers? I have to admit I never thought of them as being artificially created, but that's kind of a, a theory that the book comes up with and and they talk about a bit.
0: I thought it was brilliant. Thank you, William Shatner. Uh <laughs> I thought it was brilliant because again when you watch the TV series, we know there's budget constraints. And so they're using existing sets on the movie set lots. And, and so if you have a Western town, we're going to use the Western lot for this story because the, you know, the, the, the buildings are here. We can use them. And, we have images of earth and we can throw that up on the view screen. And so we have budget constraints. And and so we're going to work in that. There's a duplicate earth that, you know, and, and there can be all kinds of theories as to why, but it's interesting that when you have the preservers come in and the theory is that the preservers created these duplicate, not just earths, but Kronos and Vulcan and some others, so on and so forth, there's duplicate worlds out there. And if they're artificially created, I thought it was also, I'm sorry. If they're artificially created, what are they created for? And now, again, Mm -hmm. there's some truth in the novels that lead into the truth of the Star Trek universe. And it's almost like, okay, the theory is that these worlds were created by the preservers for experiments. But again, we -hmm. don't know exactly for sure why they were created. And I like then in the novel it's presented, well, were those worlds created after our Earth or is our Earth artificial? Are we the experiment?
1: Yeah, that was kind of a mind-blowing moment for sure. And I was like, whoa, I never thought of that. Um, Did you think of, because this is what immediately popped into my head, of course, was Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I was like, oh, Earth was created as a giant computer to calculate the ultimate question to the answer of life, the universe, and everything, right? I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure that's why Earth was created. (laughs) And the preservers had something to do with that, too. (laughs) Are the preservers just the little white mice
0: that created earth?
1: Yeah, (laughs) absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Or other universes are the preservers, the ones creating other universes. All this, all these questions come up from the Federation from years ago as to why are there, why are there so many duplicates out there? Not in just worlds, but also in universes.
1: Mm -hmm. I did kind of, I didn't really like the way that question was just dismissed in the book where they're like, oh, this was just a weird mystery to throw us off the scent of what they're really after or something like that. Yeah,
0: they did. They said that, oh, OK, yeah, all this stuff is just to throw us off course. So we can't figure mm-hmm. some things out. And it's like, really? So the preservers create different worlds and universes that are duplicates just so we
1: they throw the scent off? Uh, yeah, that seemed like almost a very self-centered arrogant conclusion to come come to they knew that we'd be so smart that they'd have to create this huge mystery to throw us off the trail but
0: then again i didn't they don't seem to really know what's going on that's why they keep changing their minds and the theories keep changing so i you know Mm -hmm. they may have said that but that doesn't mean it's truth right that might not be the ultimate conclusion for sure right only one person can answer that question that's david mack (laughs)
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we know who the true preserver is. Right. Yuri <laughs> himself. Excellent. Absolutely. Well, and another thing in this novel, of course, is uh, the idea of, and this is carried on from the, the previous novels, of course, secret organizations within Starfleet. And I think if I'm remembering correctly, this is the first book that they actually do make reference to, you know, the ultimate secret organization within Starfleet that we know and love to hate. Section 31. There's one tiny reference to it where I think Dr. Mabenga says, uh, Dr. Bashir warned her to stay away from groups that don't answer to the Federation. And he said it in a way that Sounded like he might know something personally about that, but she didn't really press him. So I was like, Oh, there we go. So I'm curious. I just want to
0: say, I I thought that part was interesting because I was reading the book. I kept thinking, this sounds like section 31. Mm -hmm. And I thought, did we know of section 31 from deep space nine yet at this point when this book was written? And the fact that it was published in 2000, I thought, well, yeah, I mean, we've, I, I think we knew at that point, or maybe this book was done before we knew that, but that little mm. part there that you're mentioning, that was the hint that there, w- we did know of section 31 because uh, the reference to Bashir. So I thought it was interesting that, I guess we're, that's what we're getting into, but that this kind of is a parallel to that.
1: Mhm. And yeah, so by the time this book was released and and probably written, Section 31 was out and that was all known about. But what I'm wondering is the previous two books, I don't think Inquisition Deep Space 9 season 6 had aired yet. So it's kind of interesting this kind of parallel, you know, development And without thinking, I remember when we were reading the other books, I was thinking to myself, why aren't they bringing up section 31? Like this, uh, this sounds like them. Why aren't they linking that? And it occurs to me, oh, they probably, that probably hadn't even been written or aired yet. So, but by this point, it's kind of cool that two different sources have kind of traveled along the same path to link those two together.
0: They didn't really specify if Project Sign is a part of Section 31 or a separate mm-hmm. organization of Section 31? Because as you mentioned, there's just brief reference to, oh, and there's that organization that Dr. Bashir has dealt with.
1: Yeah, it was it was just a very brief, if you as a reader are paying attention, it's kind of the authors saying, yeah, yeah, we know, we know. There's that other one out there. We're not linking it to it, but we know it's there. Don't worry, we're not just ignoring it kind of thing.
0: So this, in my mind, I was thinking, well, there's no way that Project Sign wouldn't know about Section 31 and vice versa. Right. I think, if anything, if one didn't know the other, it would be that maybe Project Sign wouldn't know about Section 31. Because I Mm -hmm. I just kept thinking that Section 31 has been around longer, because the Project Sign really started off as called Project Magnet, and it was estimated that it happened right after the events of the episode Mirror mirror as a result of the mere universe. So we're talking, you know, 2267. And we know that section 31 started at least a century before that. So I, in my mind, and based on what we were saying earlier, I was thinking preservers lead to Urii, which leads to section 31, which leads to project magnet to project sign mm-hmm. that these are all it's the results of- in, in that order.
1: It's kind of like trying to keep track of, you know, Dayton Ward talking about his UFO groups in the U.S. government, you know, uh, Project Blue Book and all that, like what one leads to the other leads to the other leads to the other. And I, I love we're getting to the point in Star Trek history where it's it's almost as convoluted and as crowded as real histories. I mean, there's so much stuff in Star Trek lore to draw upon. Absolutely. See, this is
0: what I love about reading Star Trek books because this is what got me really into Star Trek. As I said earlier, I watched the movies when I was younger, I started watching TNG when it came on air, but it wasn't until I started reading the books where all of a sudden this kind of stuff started playing in my head, because I hadn't watched every episode of the original series when I started reading the novels, and then when I started watching the original series, I'm picking up on things that I had read in the novel, so a lot of fans see the TV episodes and then see, oh, this book relates to this episode. I was coming in the opposite. I'm like, oh, that's in this book. I almost felt like each episode was relating to a book and not the other way around. But there's all these little things that I was like, (laughs) there's like this web of connections. And even though it's not perfect, it's like you're saying, our own history isn't perfect. We have different versions of it. And we try to come to, you know, what is the closest That we can get to what maybe actually happened. And that's how I feel when I read all these books. I know it's all fiction and we have different creators all behind these things and they're not all working together. But in my mind, there's a way to get these things for the most part to all fit in and give clues as to what the universe really might be doing or what's happening in the Star Trek universe without always discounting and saying, oh, this must be, take place in a parallel universe. So this is an alternate universe or whatever. It's like there's mm-hmm. these hints and clues that give us a big broader canvas of this big picture of a complex <laughs> Star Trek universe. See, I'm just geeking out now. Now
1: you're getting to my passion about <laughs> all this. <laughs> so you're saying we need a Star Trek murder wall. You know, we need, yes. you know, the, the different pictures and the, the pins and the red string linking all the little bits, you know, from one to the other, uh, you know, section 31, oh, it started here. And it, you know, all these little elements linking, you know, the, the, the weird temporal anomalies that must have allowed Kirk and company to do 28 years worth of missions within one five-year mission. Yes, seriously. Yes. Actually, I think this is what Christopher L. Bennett's house looks like. I really do when he writes the <laughs> I, DTI I wish novels. everybody listening could see Bruce's face right now because it is just lit right up. He's like a kid on Christmas morning I and am. I love it.
0: <laughs> Seriously. When, when Christopher L. Bennett writes the DTI novels, I always think he's got to have a board like that. I swear he totally. does. <laughs> I want to go to his house and just to see if that exists because I'm convinced that he has to have something like that going on. And yeah, it, it's, th- that's essentially what I'm getting at is that, you know, there's some connection somewhere between all these things that give us an ultimate view of what this complex Star Trek universe could be. And I, and that's what I'm hoping again with Discovery. It's like people are like, oh, there's no way that Discovery could blah, 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 10 years before Kirk because of blah, blah, I'm like, oh, no, you just never saw it before. This is going to open up yeah. all new doors.
1: Oh, exactly. I. Oh man, I, I could go on a rant here, but you know, it's like, I I don't want a small, tiny, little Star Trek universe where everything looks just so, and you know, blah, blah, blah. No, blow it wide open. Like I want to see every corner of the Star Trek universe and examine every little thing here and there and make it all fit together. Like, you know, and, and also, I mean, this is a tangent, but I also have faith in the discovery writers when they say they have found a little niche in the Star Trek universe that they want to explore and they pick that year for particular reasons and they have a great story they want to tell. I, I totally believe them. I, you know, go to town. Like I want to, I want to see what you guys come up with, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's, it's like when, when people say that, like their Star Trek has to fit in this little tiny box and nothing can ever deviate from that. I'm like, no, that's so limiting. Like, I want to see everything. I want, I, I, oh man. Anyway, well, that's that's why <laughs> we like
0: reading books because it exactly, it expands beyond yeah. what we've seen. It's beyond that little box. When you watch the original series, every ship pretty much is a Constitution class vessel. And mm-hmm. now, when I see images of the USS Discovery, I don't know the exact size of it, but in a lot of ways i think it looks bigger than what the uss enterprise is at that time and my first thought is mm, no that can't be and i'm like no wait it it can be i mean just <laughs> in my mind it's always been every every century or so the ships just keep getting bigger every enterprise gets bigger you look at the nx01 and then we you know go through every uss enterprise and they you know they just get bigger and bigger and bigger it's like well who says that starships time and size are related i mean We could just see, watch the original series and it's all about, you know, we see Constitution class starships, but that doesn't mean there's other ships out there that are totally different, that are bigger and smaller than that starship. Mm -hmm. And that comes back to these novels and what we're talking about with this one is that we're finding out more things that we didn't know before. You know, we didn't know there was a project sign. That was never an episode. How can you put that in the book? There was never a project sign in any episode. Well, so what? Now there is. You just didn't know about
1: it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like how many, how many times in your day-to-day life, going around, talking with people, you know, going through your daily routine, do you bring up the city of Nairobi? I mean, probably not very often, (laughs) but it exists. It's out there. You know, if somebody brought up, you know, the city of Nairobi to you tomorrow, you can't say, well, that, that's not a real city. I, I've, nobody's mentioned it for the last 10 years that I've noticed, you know, ah, come on, you know, (laughs) it's a big universe. It's a big galaxy. It's a big world. There's, there's lots of stuff out there we've never heard of and. Writers can mention it and then now you've heard of well, it. Well, it's also cool. with people.
0: I, and again, not to go off on discovery, but people were saying about, you know, the main character being related to Spock in somewhere, whatever, and I'm not going to go into that. And it was like, well, Spock hasn't ma- mentioned anything about it. Well, yeah, but you know what? I can think of times, like, for example, there's somebody at work that we found out something about him. We've known him for years and all of a sudden it's like, how come we never knew this about him? We didn't know that 20 years ago he did blah, 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 blah. Why? Yeah. You know, it's like we don't talk about everything all the time. I mean, I, you know, Mm -hmm. I found out that somebody had been married multiple times and never came up before, you know, it doesn't mean I can go, no, wait, there's no way you're on your third marriage because you never mentioned the other two ever before.
1: Exactly. (laughs) And Spock in particular, sorry, this is the last bit of this tangent, but Spock in particular has always been really not forthcoming about his family. I mean, you know, they meet Sarek and Amanda on the Enterprise and they're like, greet each other. And oh, that was cool. Hey Spock, since we're on Vulcan, maybe you should beam down and see your folks. And he's like, uh, Ambassador Sarek is my dad. Like he's an ambassador in the Federation and you didn't know he was Spock's dad. Right. Yeah. He's going to be talking about his human adopted sister all the time. I'm sure. Yep. <laughs> anyway, anyway, all of that aside, uh, let's, get back to (laughs) preserver. Thanks. Thanks for being patient through the digression. Um, and we're kind of getting into, well, actually before we get to this, I want to talk a little bit about the two Kirks. Uh, we got a little bit about Kirk versus Kirk in the last novel. In this novel, they really took their story in a direction I wasn't expecting. You know, the two of them, uh, and we're getting into the ending here, so we're getting into spoilers. They end up crossing into the mirror universe together and kind of in a weird way working together. And there are a few times where they seem to be not so much trusting Tiberius, but like giving him a bit of a long leash, which I was really, I found really unexpected. I was kind of like, you know, this, this, you know, he... And I mean, I, I guess it's kind of the lesson of the book really in the end. But, you know, he's done some really terrible, really horrible things. And I think he gets off pretty lightly, personally. Um, I don't know. I, I have a lot of thoughts about this. But they're not really I'm, – I'm not really – putting to them together really well. What well, did you, what did you think of that whole aspect of the story? I,
0: I didn't expect to see the two working together. They didn't necessarily trust one another or have full respect for one another. I don't know if, because that they in some ways are essentially the same person that there's this weird dynamic between them, a love hate in a sense. I, I didn't feel like the writing of that, of, of this book really clarified that in any way to us. I thought mm. he did the mere Kirk or Tiberius, as he's referred to, got off a little easy because towards the beginning of the book, we see that he is eventually and, and sets it up to try to kill James Kirk of our universe. And of course, mm-hmm. Kirk always gets out of a mess and, you know, he's back. But then they're, you know, hanging around together and the Federation is just letting Tiberius run around with James Kirk. And I'm like, he tried to kill him. (laughs) Like what? Yeah. Uh, Wait, wait, what? I don't understand why. I mean, they feel like there's the preservers are after Tiberius. And so there's, they're kind of using Tiberius as bait, but I didn't feel like, I felt like, yeah, he had a long leash to do whatever he wanted to do.
1: And And I really, I felt like our Kirk, our in quote marks, Kirk was okay with working with Tiberius really quickly. You know, like, you know, they make a few mentions about like when they're putting each other's spacesuits on, for example, and checking the seals. They're like, oh, the last time we did this, we were trying to kill each other. You know, they're each thinking in their heads and like, oh, this is weird. And then, then they go back to what they're doing kind of thing. Like it just, it seemed to be acknowledged here and there, but I was just like, I don't know if I'm buying these two working together in, any kind of circumstances like this, but I'm with you on that. I don't know. I I, I think we both agree on that. All right, cool. Well, I just wanted to, (laughs) wanted to be like, dude, Tiberius anyway. So getting into the end of this book. And again, like I said, we're into the end. We're into big spoilers here. This whole idea of Kirk not getting a happy ending. So McCoy at one point says that Kirk is the happiest he's been in a long time because he's with Teilani. But, and again, spoilers, I'm warning everybody big time here. If you haven't read this book and you want to and you don't want to be spoiled, but by the end of this book, Teilani has sacrificed herself to save uh, the captain, and um, Captain MacDonald uh, of the Pathfinder in this case, and she's died a hero's death. Now, man, like Kirk, like you say in the in the notes here, he just can't catch a break. I mean, wouldn't we love for Kirk to just retire and settle down with the love of his life and live happily ever after? Why can't why can't he do that? Why do we have to keep torturing this guy? And why do we, you know, even separate from Kirk? I'm really sad to lose the character of Teilani, who in her own right, I think was an amazing character with a lot of really interesting potential, not just for the way she relates to Kirk, but in and of herself too.
0: Yeah. She was really growing on me as a character Mm -hmm. and she was really developing and I'm disappointed that she's gone i knew she was going to die having not read this book but read the books that come after this i've read some of those so I, i knew it was coming i just didn't know how i found the i found some of this book to be a bit depressing because everything that kirk has been through and then fast forward to the 24th century and he's found happiness he's with his now wife and then she has a baby which we didn't talk about but his son, <laughs> Joseph is born and he's kind of like, I don't like they refer to him as a monster. He he doesn't come out well I mean, he's alive and I guess he's healthy in a sense. I mean, they're, they're still working on him. I think by the time we get to the, end of the book, he's, you know, they're still kind of dealing with it and then his wife dies. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, I, when can we have him right out into the sunset? You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I just don't feel like Kirk is ever going to reach a point that he finds true happiness and and grows old and dies. But then again, life isn't fair. And I guess we all would like a life that is going to ride out into the sunset and happy. And we don't have a guarantee of that. The only way we would know what's going to happen towards the end of our lives is if we study the patterns and we can predict those things.
1: (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean... There was, I, I, I know why they did it. I know why they got rid of Teilani. I mean, it's kind of been a recurring thing in these last few books that, you know, he wants to be settled down with Taylani and he wants to raise a family with her. But the Kirk that we know and love is out among the stars adventuring and that sort of thing. So you can't keep having this this recurring thing where he... You know, wants to be on the planet, but gets pulled away somehow. You know that gets old. And I remember thinking while I was reading this book, like, man, they're doing this again, where where he wants to stay with her, and she wants him to stay with her, but he's leaving again, and they can't keep doing this. And I had no idea they were going to kill her off at the end of this book, other than the little bit of foreshadowing here and there that you kind of, in retrospect, realize. But. I, yeah, I had no idea like really that this was coming, but in retrospect, it makes total sense. I mean, they want, without having read the future books in my mind, I think, you know, they want Kirk out among the stars and not tied down. It's just too bad that they had to do it that way. You know, <laughs> they, they have to set up this really amazing character that I, like you have really come to like, uh, and then, you know, kill her off and, you know, a hero's death for sure. But still, it was just like, uh, really, did we have to go that way? Anyway. Well, I can add to this too,
0: because I remember reading years ago in an interview, and I think I may have mentioned this a little bit on another show, but as William Shatner is working on these novels with Judith and Garfield Reeve-Stevens, he's coming up with story ideas. And they're basically the ones writing the books. But he's, he's mm-hmm. working with them, and they're working with him to come up with story ideas. So there's a lot of things about his life at the time of these books that he's putting in, in his story suggestions. Oh. His wife passed away a year before this book.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, she was found. I didn't even put that together. Yeah, she
0: was found dead in a, in the swimming pool at their house. And yeah. uh, I don't, he doesn't really deal with the death in this book because the death happens at the end. But I know in later books, there's, you know, Kirk dealing with the death of Talani. And he was putting a lot of his thoughts and emotions into those books based on what he experienced with his uh his previous wife's death. So right. I, I wow, that makes sense. I don't know I... if when he had conversations with the other authors, if he's like, "Well, you know, my wife died last year, and so let's kill Talani at the end of the book, probably not. <laughs> I don't know, but maybe they sold him on the idea of like, what if we killed Kirk's wife at the end of the book, and in future books, we deal with we have Kirk deal with her death it's just and and you can write to that. Yeah, you know, I I don't know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm just throwing that out there. There's some connection between that. I remember hearing that in, a, in an interview years
1: ago. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And and I, I'm kind of kicking myself for not putting that together while I was reading this. But yeah, that makes a lot of That's sense. That's why
0: you have me
1: and my two brains. <laughs> exactly. This is why we talk about Star Trek novels every week. Because, you know, like we've said before, it, you know, oftentimes we'll come out of a discussion with a completely different view of a book than when we started because, you know, we had this opportunity to hash out the ideas. And I hope that, you know, listeners out there that we're doing that for you as well, that you can engage with the book on a different level and, you know, almost take part in this virtual conversation that we have about these books. So speaking of how our views on the book may or may not have changed since before this discussion started. Bruce, why don't you share your final thoughts and a rating for preserver?
0: I have said this multiple times and I'm going to say it on other shows. I know it's going to come up, but I start to appreciate some books more once we start talking through it, because it's like you said, Dan, you're, you bring new ideas to the table that I didn't think of or, or say something that sparked something in my head that didn't come to mind at the time. Um, and I'm not saying I'm, I really like this book that much more than I did before we started recording this episode. But I think there's a lot, I didn't realize that there's a lot more here than, than I thought. So I would say, it's very good read. It got us talking about a lot of different topics, which Star Trek is supposed to do. Uh, it, and it's added some rich elements to the universe, like the duplicate worlds and the preservers and such. So I'm going to say that there's an 85% chance that I really like this book.
1: Nice. I like that. Excellent. Well, yeah, like you, I, I really enjoy this hashing out of ideas and, and, a lot of times it really does change what I think about the the books that we talk about. I think in this case, I'm still pretty much in line with what I thought when we first started talking about it. I like a lot of the ideas in the book. I like big picture, big scope stuff. However, a lot of times I felt like it was kind of muddled. Like there was just a little bit of a mishmash of stuff going on and A lot of times it didn't really seem to coalesce until, you know, the last minute when, oh, we figured out they're doing this. Oh, they're going to detonate all the dilithium and it's going to do this. Oh, okay. Okay. So we got to do that. And then some of the character stuff, we didn't really get into this, but Captain McDonald, I was really confused by her behavior and, and yeah, based on what we knew of her in the previous books. And here again is a character that I was really starting to like in the previous books and then here, man, her character just takes a left turn, and and you know, I and I know it's she's not a real person, and I don't necessarily need to respect her her decisions. It's you know what the writers do with her. It's like she became but, the
0: mere McDonald.
1: Yeah, like it was just it, it it was seemingly out of left field, and you know when she's on her shattered bridge and she's screaming vengeance at Picard and telling them to telling her crew to target the Enterprise's bridge, I'm going, okay, okay, let's step back here. What, <laughs> what, what's, what's bothering you? <laughs> like, Wow. Like just totally uh, off the deep end. Yeah. And so just certain little things in that, in like that in the novel rubbed me the wrong way. I don't want to say all bad things. I really, I had an enjoyable time reading this book. It was fine, but just stuff like that really rubbed me the wrong way, which makes me have to give this one Three out of five Preserver Obelisks. Now, that's not a bad rating if you look on Goodreads, the five-star system, for example. One star is I didn't like it. Two stars is it was okay. And three stars is I liked it. And, you know, I liked this one, but it just, you know, it didn't, it took away those two stars by just kind of being a little confused in some areas and some parts that just bugged me you know? Yeah. No, I'm with you. I, I, I agree with you a hundred percent on that. There's,
0: there were things, Mc, yeah, Captain McDonald was, just seemed way off. Like I, I, I kept expecting that we were going to hear a reason more why this was happening, but it was just, it just seemed extreme.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely.
0: Okay. Well, that's two of the three Shatner trilogies in the can we got the two done. We've got another trilogy out there. Don't know exactly when we're
1: going to do those books, but uh, we're definitely going to hit those at some point here soon. Is it, wow. Is it really just the one remaining trilogy? And then, and then Collision Course was just a single book. But, you know, whenever I looked at the Shatnerverse novels, I always think there's so many of them. I'm never going to get around to reading them, you know, until we, we started doing these. I had no idea when I was going to do it, but yeah, I guess you're right. There's there's just the the one trilogy left, isn't there?
0: Yeah, and I remember this last trilogy feeling less like a trilogy than these other books. These books felt more connected as a trilogy. I don't recall this last trilogy. They felt more standalone. There's, there's connections, but I don't know. It's been such a long time, like I said earlier, that that's why I want to kind of go back to
1: these because I'd like to see how these stand up. Okay. Well, that's interesting. But it's been fun talking about chat narrative trilogies today, but that's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, Warp 5.
0: (laughs) I just thought, you know, those are where of course some of the other enterprise references come up. He was a Mako, he fought in those Indian Romulan wars. I really like that that background and that tie-in. And it makes sense that, you know, over the course of a hundred years that somebody's gonna kinda go a little crazy and and you know, get to this point where they're just, you know, seething for some for some kind of revenge or, or something. So The Ready Room
1: Of all the things people to to wonder about and question and be concerned about canon and visual canon on Discovery, the Klingons haven't concerned me that much because I think the Klingons are ripe and long overdue for, you know, for lack of a better term, some species diversity. And one of the things that Star Trek is, is prey to, and people acknowledge it, but still, we wish it wasn't a limiting factor, was TV budgets. The 602 Club. That emotional core... Uh, And and I I tie that, too, with the, the mentors that Peter doesn't have throughout the film. There's nobody there to pick up that Uncle Ben slack.
0: And introducing The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast.
1: What have you done out there on the edge of Federation Space? Welcome to
0: The Edge, Trek FM's brand new podcast where we dive into the
1: final frontier of the newest Star Trek series. Star Trek Discovery, the first Star Trek series to be on air in 12 and
0: a half years, something like that. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm.
1: So check out all of these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.
0: If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play, Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone and most third-party apps. And you
1: can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. You know, it takes a lot to bring these episodes to you each week, and we'd really appreciate your help. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, access to the Mirror Universe, where you can prevent the detonation of Dilithium, and more, available through our special patrons' website, PatronZone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, and we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all of the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm.
0: We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways you can do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. It's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select literary treks, and that will come right to us, and you can find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook
1: at facebook.com slash Trekfm. You can also find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section, so you know what's coming up for future shows. Plus, there are great conversations happening about all of the books and comics. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group, and we will let you right in. We'd like to thank our associate producers Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, and Brandon Chemutala for their support of the Trek FM Network, and specifically for being associate producers for Literary Treks. Well, Bruce, when you're not consulting with psychohistorians and trying to prevent the end of the universe as we know it, where can we find you? You can find me and my two brains
0: on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast on StarWarsReport.com. And of course you can find me in the Babel conference, hopefully talking about this novel with all of you who are listening right now. And Dan, when you're not visiting duplicate worlds, trying to find which is the real one,
1: where can people find you? Is there even a real one? Like, Man, are they okay? Are they all copies of unoriginal or are they all just completely artificial? Oh, um, anyway. uh, my head's gonna explode. <laughs> this is the stuff that keeps me up at night and while i'm up at night you can find me tweeting into the wee hours on twitter at kurtrats that's k-e-r-t-r-a-t-s you can find me making conspiracy theory videos but not actually on youtube.com slash productions and you can find me on facebook.com slash productions as well well thank you everyone for listening and until next time live long and read on You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.